0: uh those of you that know that I love movies uh might be surprised if especially those of you that that have heard me preach very much you might be surprised to know that my favorite movie is actually not one of the Lord of the Rings trilogy it's up there uh also not Harry Potter so don't get your hopes up uh it's uh my I think one of the greatest all-time movies probably my top movie is the Shawshank Redemption um and uh Andy Dufresne is falsely accused, uh, convicted, sentenced to life in Shawshank Prison, thrown into this terrible pit of a place. Um, and he rises uh, to become favored by the warden and, and takes on all kinds of incredible. Um, responsibilities, and then he's betrayed again. Uh, there's a witness that's willing to say, hey, Andy's innocent, and the warden has this guy killed, and has Andy thrown down in the solitary confinement, um, but he refuses to give up on hope. And after decades in Shawshank, uh, Andy and his friend Red, played by Morgan Freeman, are talking, and, and Andy's talking about how he's going to spend his final years down on this beautiful beach in Mexico, and, and, and Red says, hope is a dangerous thing. And um, Andy, is, is he refuses to stop hoping. He says, get busy living or get busy dying. And uh, as I think about this man falsely accused and betrayed and thrown into a pit, I can't help but think about Joseph um, and about how Joseph refused to give up on faith, hope, and love, even though terrible and tragic things Happened to him. There's this truth that as we read through the Joseph narrative, there's this truth, there's a statement that appears over and over and over about Joseph, and it's God was with him. Three times in Genesis 39, we read, God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. In the palace, God was with Joseph in the pit, in the prison. Um, normally, we think that that when God is with us, that means everything's going to be going our way. When we think God is with us, we normally think that means nothing bad's going to happen, only good stuff's going to happen. But that's not what we see in the life of Joseph. That's not the li- That's not the pattern we see in the life of Jesus Christ. What God being with you means is that no matter what happens, no matter what has happened, no matter what you've done, no matter what bad or evil things have been done to you, you do not... Have to walk through that alone You do not have to walk through it by yourself Because God is with you And ultimately nothing can derail Your life When your life is defined by God with you Now there are things that can devastate you There are things that that, that May shatter you There may be things that are terrible That, that happen to you And that, and that you do um, but nothing ultimately can derail your life when your life is defined by God with you. If you know that God is with you in Christ, um, no sin, no evil, no wickedness, no mistake has the power um, to destroy you or to destroy your life. So let's look about uh, at Joseph's story. Kind of, We're going to kind of do an overview of Joseph's life, and then we're going to kind of come back and zero in at the end. But Joseph's narrative, uh, Joseph's story spans from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. And a lot more time is spent on Joseph's life than, than on Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. It's because Joseph. Joseph's the best example we have in, in the book of Genesis. Really, is the best example in the entire Old Testament of what it looks like to be faithful to God. He's the best example we have um, in this book, Genesis, that begins with man and woman being created in God's image. Joseph is the greatest example of what it means to be a person in God's image. He's, he's um, in, in his life, really more than anybody else in Genesis, more than anybody probably arguably in the entire Old Testament, Joseph's life foreshadows the life of Jesus Christ. There's so much of what happens in Joseph's life that points toward, um, toward the life of Jesus Christ. But we remember this starts in Genesis 37. Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. Now of all people... Jacob should have known better than to play favorites with his kids. Remember, Jacob was his mom's favorite son. His twin brother Esau was his dad's favorite son, and that wreaked havoc through the family. But of all people, Jacob should have known that that doesn't work, to play favorites with your kids. But but the thing is, when we have sin patterns in our lives that we don't surrender to Christ and we don't accept healing and freedom from, those sin patterns end up infecting the generation that comes after us. Only Jesus Christ can break that bondage of, of sin, and, and that doesn't happen in Jacob, and, and it infects the generation after him. He ends up playing favorites with his kids. Joseph was a favorite son of his favorite wife, Rachel, and, uh, and he was the youngest for a long time until years later Benjamin came, came along. Um, and so you might remember one of the most vivid details about Joseph's life is this coat of many colors that uh, his father gave him also could be translated a coat of long sleeves uh, but either way it's a really special coat it's a really nice coat not sure how long sleeves or many colors can be translated the same best the beauty of the Hebrew language okay the point is it's a it's a it's a special coat and probably like having such a nice outfit probably exempted Joseph from a lot of like the field uh, like shepherding work that his that his brothers had to do and so Basically, uh, you know, Joseph is 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 the favorite, and he and this is creating division and resentment uh, amongst his siblings. So, uh, Jacob's shopping for Joseph at Armani, and the rest of the brothers are getting their clothes at the half off rack at Dollar Tree. Okay, and they're not liking how this is working out, and um, uh, and then Joseph starts having dreams. And he dreams that his brothers and even his mom and dad bow down to him, and they're just sitting around the dinner table and says, hey, guess this what I dreamed I dream you're all bowing down to me. And so if you're dreaming, just a little, you know, a pro tip for you, if you're dreaming that your siblings uh, and, and, and friends and relatives are going to bow down before you, you might want to kind of play that one close to the chest for a little while, like kind of keep that one close, uh, keep that one quiet, but, but he doesn't, he's, he's got this incredible gift of dreaming. Um, and that's going to benefit him so much later, but he's maybe immature in the beginning in how he exercises that gift. But it's clear that, that evil wants to destroy this God-given gift in him. And really, that's how evil is played out in your life as well. God put beauty in you. God put glory in you that's so unique to you. And since you entered this world Evil has been at work to destroy that glory that God put in you. And so Joseph is coming to check on his brothers. His dad apparently didn't have Joseph out in the fields working with his brothers, so he sends Joseph to Shechem to go check on him, bring him a report about them. How are they doing? And so Genesis 37, verse 18. Genesis 37, verse 18. The brothers saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Um, So see how they've labeled him and they're mocking him uh, in the place of his deep giftedness. Um, That's how evil works. Now we can kind of relate to the brothers. I mean, Joseph would have probably been hard to take. Um, We can relate to their resentment. They say, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Then they conspired to kill him. Verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. I hope at this point you're not relating to the brothers anymore. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe you would have beat him up or something, but they say, hey, let's kill him, throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. They thought about this. They plotted this. And the thing about sin is, you may think, man, I would never do that. This is crazy. Sin will take you where you never thought you would go. Sin will lead you down a path you would have sworn you would never been on. And that's exactly how bitterness has and resentment has manifested in the lives of these brothers. We'll see what comes of his dreams. All right. Um, verse 21, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let's not take his life, shed no blood. Let's throw him into a pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. So love Reuben, good old Reuben. Let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into a hole. Okay. He's a good brother. But he planned to come rescue him from their hands and then present him to their father, probably earning a little favor from dad in the process. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of the robe of colors that he wore. Isn't that just a painful, isn't that just a painful image of them just taking and ripping that beautiful robe from his shoulders that his father had given to him? And they took him and they threw him into a pit. They sat down to eat. They're so racked with guilt. They'd think, well, now's a good time to sit down and have a meal. And so they sit down and eat, and they say, you know what? If we kill him, we're, just, we're leaving some money on the table, so let's sell him. And so there's some slave traders that come through. You remember the story? They sell him to the slave traders. Joseph ends up in, the, in, in Egypt in the house of a powerful Egyptian named Potiphar. So he's, he experiences this betrayal. He's thrown into a pit. He rises from that pit. And in, in, the, in, in Potiphar's house, this wealthy man in Egypt, he becomes head of the entire household entrusted with all of Potiphar's belongings. He goes from the pit to the palace, but then he's betrayed again. Um, he's betrayed again. In, in, in uh, chapter 39, we read that, that Potiphar's wife keeps trying to seduce Joseph. She keeps telling him, well, literally what she says is, lie, well, she says, lie with me. Uh, Genesis 39, um, Verse 7 After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to her, Behold, because my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness in sin against God? And then day after day she says this to him, lie with me. Maybe, first of all, my first thought is maybe Potiphar's wife needs to work on her pickup lines. This seems like a, a, little, a little direct. I don't know, uh, but... Um, But he refuses. But this isn't like a one time thing, and he resists temptation every day, every day, every day. And Joseph refuses to sin against his master. He refuses to sin against God until finally one day she catches him alone. Remember, she grabs him by the coat—a different coat this time. But the but the but the, the the image of her tearing this coat takes us back to his brothers tearing off a different coat. And she grabs the coat, and he runs away. He flees, and she still has his coat in her hands. And then her husband gets home, and she says, "That that servant of yours—he he tried to force himself on me." And and uh, and so Joseph is betrayed, and he's thrown into prison. This time he's thrown into a different kind of pit. He's thrown into prison. In Egypt. Um, I'm not sure what prisons in Egypt were like then. But I'm going to guess it wasn't a a fun place to be. And so he's thrown into this pit. Years pass. Years pass. Don't you know that Joseph was. Don't you know there were low moments. Don't you know there were moments where he was. Felt so forgotten. And abandoned. And yet we read again. The Lord was with Joseph. Just in chapter 39. um, Verse 1. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. An Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man and was in the house of his Egyptian master. Um, His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Um, Skipping down to verse uh, 20. After he's betrayed, Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him his steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Verse 23, 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So, it's... It's tempting to read about the Lord being with Joseph and how he's successful and interpret that as, well, if the Lord's with me, that means I'm always going to be successful. But remember where, remember the context. He's, the Lord's with him and making him a success and giving him a favor as he's a slave and then as he's, as he's a prisoner. These are terrible things to walk through. And, and when we think when, you know, when we see something good happen to a bad person or something bad happen to somebody we think is good, we, we always ask, well, where was God? Where is God? I mean, we've all asked that question. God, where were you? Where are you? And as Joseph is sitting in a pit, as Joseph is 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 feeling abandoned and alone, where was God? God was with Joseph. And that is the truth that 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 the author of Genesis is telling us. That's the truth that we're being told defines Joseph's life. That's the banner of his, that's what Joseph's t-shirt says. It could have said, I'm a victim forever. It could have said, I'm betrayed, I'm resentful. It could have said anything, but it said, the Lord is with me. And that shapes everything uh, that comes. That's going to be how he, that's going to shape his response to everything. So, So he rises through the ranks of the prison. The Lord is with him. I mean, he could have just quit. If anybody ever had an excuse to throw in the towel, it was Joseph. If anybody ever had an excuse to be bitter, it was Joseph. If there's anybody that ever said, I, I just not, I'm not going to believe in God anymore. I, I, I've lost all faith. Joseph had every excuse to quit. And he didn't. I mean, I've been bitter for a lot less. And yet, here he is. The Lord is with him. He rises through the ranks there in, in the prison. He becomes in charge of the whole prison. And, uh, and then uh, the, the two officials of Pharaoh, the butler and the baker, fall out of favor Um, with Pharaoh, they get thrown into prison. They each have a dream, and and, and Joseph's gift of dreaming and dream interpretation comes in handy, and he interprets their dream. Uh, The butler, he says, you're getting out of here in a few days. The baker, he says, you're going to die, and that happens. And as the butler's leaving, Joseph says to him, and you can almost hear just the desperation in his voice. He tells the butler, he says, remember me. When you get in front of Pharaoh, remember me. But the butler left, the butler gets a taste of freedom, and the butler forgot all about Joseph. By now, Joseph knows what it feels like to be forgotten about. But, but the sense of this passage, the sense of this story, is that even though God isn't taking Joseph's pain away instantly, God has not forgotten Joseph. God is with Joseph. God is doing something in the midst of all of this evil and all of the struggle. So Genesis 41 happens, and, and Pharaoh has had, been, been having some nightmares and, uh, and, and uh, like all powerful people, he's worried about, about what he's going to lose. And, and he has this crazy dream of these big fat cows, seven cows that get swallowed up by seven skinny cows, and nobody can interpret the dream. And so then the butler says, Wait a minute, there was a guy I shared a cell block with. And, and he was great with dream interpretation. And so, so they, they, they call out to, to Joseph in Genesis 41 in um, Genesis 41, um, verse 14. Pharaoh sent, 41, 14, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. That's the description of where he was. Now, some pits we get into because of our own sin. Now, have you ever gotten into a pit that you dug yourself? And some pits we get into because of other people's sin, and, and, and it, it wasn't anything you did. But it, whichever kind of pit... It is. There's only one way out of it, and that is by God's grace through faith. That's the only way we get out. Um, I had a whole Dark Knight Rises illustration where you know uh, Bruce Wayne has to jump out of the pit. Sonda told me it was no good, but you know you can watch Dark Knight Rises sometime and, and, and tell me. All right. So he he shaved himself and changed his clothes. He came in before Pharaoh. Now Joseph, prisoner, slave. Is standing is standing before the most powerful man in the world, and Pharaoh, and this powerful man thinks he's God. Keep this in mind. This guy thinks he's God. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, "I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard that it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it." And Joseph said, "It's not me. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer." We know that Joseph. I mean, if anybody had an excuse to lose faith, he has an excuse. But he hasn't because here he is saying to the most powerful man in the world who thinks he's God... I don't know how to interpret your dream, but I have a relationship. I know a God who is greater than you, who really is God, who knows how to interpret dreams. And, it's that, and that, that's the one that I'm trusting. And, and Joseph's faith isn't this generic, everything's going to be okay because there's a God out there somewhere. His faith is rooted and grounded in the specific relationship, the specific revelation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he interprets Pharaoh's dream. He has a, a solution to the problem because God's given him incredible wisdom. And, and Pharaoh says, hey, I want you to be my right-hand man. And he's exalted from the pit to the to the right hand of the most powerful man in the world. He becomes a rescuer of Egypt and a rescuer of the nations. Everybody was going to run out of food, and he saw there's going to be seven years. The dream means there's seven years of 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 great bounty and seven years of famine. We need to store food for the next seven years, and then we'll have food during those hard times. So this whole story, again, is punctuated by this phrase, God was with Joseph. God gave Joseph incredible favor in dark places, but that doesn't mean it was easy to be stuck in prison for years doesn't mean it was easy to be betrayed by your family. God was with Joseph, even though at times I'm sure it didn't feel like it. I'm sure Joseph didn't wake up every day feeling like, I'm just the luckiest man in the world to be here in a pit. But God was with Joseph. There were years, I mean, we're not talking about days, years that he must have felt all alone and forgotten. But nothing can ultimately derail your life when your life is defined by God with you. So how does Joseph respond? Um. again, he responds with faith, faith grounded in this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's look at at, at kind of how redemption plays out for Joseph's family. Um, So Genesis 43 tells us, you know, the brothers get hungry, their tummies start growling because they're they're, they're out of food, the the years of, of famine have come. And there's, there's, there's this regional famine that, just like Joseph predicted, is affecting everybody. And so Jacob sends his son, everybody except Benjamin, down to Egypt, the one place that has food. Egypt is the one place that has food because God providentially and sovereignly had placed Joseph there, even though it seemed like it was his brother's sin that, that placed them there. Um, so uh, Jacob sends his boys except Benjamin down there. And they see Joseph, this powerful, they don't know who he is. They, they assume, you know, he, they're the, he's the last person they expect to see. Jacob thoughts, thinks has thought he's been dead all these years. They see this powerful Egyptian, and he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And it's a crazy story how it plays out. And he tests them several times. He has them bring Benjamin back. And as he sees um, their character, Joseph finally, he just falls down sobbing. It's an emotional moment. It's a beautiful moment. They bow down at his feet in fulfillment of the dream that he dreamed. And he forgives them. He doesn't just forgive them, but he says, I'm going to provide for you. Joseph doesn't just say, I forgive you. Stay over there in your corner. I never want to see you again. He says, I forgive you, and I am going to go above and beyond and care for you. That's going the extra mile. Here Joseph is at the right hand of the most powerful king, and he's in a position to care for and provide and forgive his family. In Genesis chapter 50, beginning of verse 19, this is where we'll zero in. At this point, this is years later, Jacob has died, and the brothers think, okay, I know Joseph said he forgave us, but now that dad's dead, I bet he's going to kill us. He's going to hurt us now. They're probably thinking that because that's what they would do. You know how you get afraid that other people are going to do the dark things that you would do? You ever notice that? Um, And that's what's happening here. And so they come to him, and they throw themselves down. Genesis 50, verse 19 But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph refuses to place himself on God's throne. They say, man, are, 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 you, gonna, are you really going to forgive us? We're your servants. And they bow down. And he says, am I in the place of God? When you refuse to forgive someone, or you refuse to accept God's forgiveness that's been extended to you, you are putting yourself in the place of God. And that's exactly what Joseph is refusing to do here. He refuses to minimize or excuse their sin. Look at what he says next, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Sometimes, part of why we bristle against forgiveness is we think it means we got to minimize or justify or make okay what other people did. And Joseph doesn't do that. He doesn't say, man, I know it it wasn't a big deal when he threw me in a pit and sold me. No, he says, what you did was evil. You meant it for evil. He doesn't downplay. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't ignore. He says, what you did was evil. But God intended it for good. Joseph has come to trust the sovereign hand of God that didn't cause their sin, but was in the midst of their sin. Through this great evil that happened in his life, God's hand was at work, placing him where God wanted to place him. As Joseph's dream died, it was resurrected into an even greater dream. Sin can't derail his life or God's plan because God is with him. The clearest picture of this is the cross of Jesus Christ. Nobody, when they nailed Jesus to a cross, thought, you know, I bet this is really going to benefit humanity, us doing that. That was pure evil. We crucified Jesus, and that was evil, but God was at work redeeming the world. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself in the midst even of your evil. Of the evil you have committed and the evil that others have committed and perpetrated against you. God was at work to bring you to the place he wanted you to be. Because God is with me, suffering does not have to define me. Because God was with Joseph, his suffering didn't have to define him. His pit, he could have just stayed in that pit and wallowed in that pit and thrown in the towel in that pit and he could have stayed there forever, but God was with him. There was something greater than that pit that defined Joseph. Um, because God is with me, success doesn't define me. I mean, Joseph could have gotten all dolled up in the, in the palace and, 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 and defined himself by that success, but even the success didn't define him. And that makes me think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians. It says, man, I've learned how to have a little bit and trust God. I've learned how to have a lot and trust God. I've learned to be content no matter what stat- state I find myself in. Because God is with me, not only does suffering or success not have to define me or define you, but sin doesn't have to define you either. Joseph resists temptation. He, when Potiphar's wife says, lie with me, and, and grabs his coat, and he runs, he refuses to allow sin to define him. Why? Normally, I think when we talk about guys like Joseph, we think, well, he was a really great guy, so let's be really great guys like him. What empowered Joseph to flee temptation and not be defined by sin? I mean, think about this. This daily onslaught of temptation that he faces. And yet he overcomes it. Because he's great? Because he knows that God is with him. That's the truth that defines his life. God is with Joseph. Not looking over his shoulder, waiting to catch him doing something and making a mistake, but God is empowering Joseph. God is walking with Joseph. And God is with me, therefore I can overcome temptation. That's the only way you or I are ever going to overcome the daily onslaught of temptations that we experience because when we come to embrace and define ourselves as one who is walking with God, who is loved by God, God is with me. Joseph is empowered to forgive because God is with him. The, the, the sin of his brothers doesn't define him. He forgives them because why does he? how does he forgive them? Man, that Joseph's a nice guy. Man, that Joseph's a great guy. Man, he's a go-getter. No! God is with Joseph. And even when he looks people that abused and harmed him in the face, he's able to feel love for them. And not just that I forgive you now, never look at me again. But he says in verse uh, 50 verse 20, <clears throat> 50 verse 20, um, as for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. To not just forgive, but to care for those who have hurt him, Joseph is empowered to forgive. Not because Joseph is a great guy, but because God is with Joseph. Recently, um, Misty Muncy shared a campfire story, and she, she shared about Corey Ten Boom, who <clears throat> was uh, she and, and 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 her sister, I believe Betsy, were thrown into a concentration camp for concealing Jews in their home during the Nazi occupation of Holland in World War II. She was speaking at a church in Munich, Germany, after the war. And after the service, she had been speaking about forgiveness. And she sees a man come down after the service, and she recognizes him as being one of the guards from Ravensburg Prison, where she had been held. Now he was in front of me, she writes, hand thrust out, a fine message for line, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly on forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course, but I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I who sins, had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives is a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of a war of the war, she writes, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Listen to this. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand to the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joint hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. She writes, if there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Joseph hadn't done a lot of good things and stored up a lot of good things that he drew from to say, oh, I forgive you, brothers. He had to draw his strength exactly the way you and I have to draw ours, from the presence of God who was with him day by day. The God who says, my mercies are new every morning. Joseph's story fulfills the promise to Abraham to bless the nations. It partially fulfills that. And that promise will be perfectly fulfilled by Jesus. Joseph's story points forward to Jesus. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones writes this of Joseph. One day, God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good. He would forgive the sins of the whole world. There's so many similarities between the Joseph story and Jesus story, but I'd like as we close to point out a few ways that that Jesus is better than Joseph. Genesis, again, begins with humans created in God's image and placed in this perfect garden, and it ends with Joseph and his embalmed body in a coffin. Joseph, the greatest example of what it means to be Created in God's image, as the curtain closes on Genesis, Joseph is dead and embalmed and waiting for his bones to be returned to the promised land. As the curtain closes on the gospel, the gospel climaxes, not in Jesus' body in a tomb, but him stepping triumphantly out of the, cross, out of the, the tomb, resurrected, having the power to deliver you. In fulfillment of the promise to Abram, Joseph rescues a generation of Israelites and blesses the nations with food. Jesus rescues all who will trust him, and he blesses the nations with redemption. Joseph hoped that one day his family would return to the promised land. Jesus claims the universe and offers you an eternity with him. Abundant life now and forever. Joseph was exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh and used his position of power and influence not to strike vengeance on his brothers, but to forgive them. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven and uses his position of power to intercede for you and to offer you reconciliation. Those like you and me who have betrayed him. Jesus is Emmanuel. The New Testament tells us this title of Jesus, probably one of the most beautiful titles for him, that he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you know Jesus, that means that God is with you. Your shirt says, God is with me. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, I am with you always. So as the band comes up, as we close... Right now, in this moment, you sit or stand before a king. A king against whom you and I have sinned. A king that you and I have betrayed. Yet he calls out to us to be reconciled to him and reconciled to one another. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of Lent. Is a time that we remember that we come from dust and to dust we can return. The season of Lent is about remembering that life is short. So keep hold on to this thought for a moment. Life is short. Eternity is long. Life is, this life is short, but eternity is long. How are you going to spend your remaining moments on earth will it be bound up in hate bitterness resentment unforgiveness how will you spend your moments on earth will you live your life defined by something less than god is with you life is short Eternity is long. Maybe as you read the story, maybe you identify with Joseph's brothers. Maybe you've done horrible things. And you've hung your head in shame. Maybe you identify with Joseph and and, 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 and terrible things have been done to you. And most of us probably identify a little bit with both. How is God calling you to be reconciled to Him? Who is God calling you to be reconciled to?